Okay, good evening, good evening, good evening everyone. Uh, I think today's discussion is perhaps the most ambitious one that we will be undertaking because I'm going to try to not only give like a perspective of why Israel is important uh, historically, kind of in you know the Jewish perspective on Israel, and why is it so significant, and why is all our hopes and our yearnings throughout these thousands of years that we've been abandoned for Israel, and why it's always been about going back to Israel, what's the whole craze all about. Uh, not only that, I also want to give a brief sketch, an overview of kind of the history of Israel and the relationship the Jewish people have had with the land uh, from the time starting with Abraham, essentially, uh, all the way to, to nowadays. So that actually, when I gave this the first time, I titled it From Bible to Bibi, kind of everything in between. Uh, I, I understand it sounds, like it sounds ambitious. Um, I'm going to try to talk a little, quickly, a little quicker than I usually do. Um, but I think we can do it in the time allotted. So let's start with kind of some of the major ideas that we find uh, in Jewish, in Jewish uh, philosophy regarding uh, the land of Israel and its significance. So we find in the Talmud the following statement. The mitzvah of settling the land of Israel is equal to the rest of the mitzvahs combined. If you have 613 mitzvahs, as we all know, one of them is to live in Israel, that mitzvah equals all 100, 612 of them combined. Now, as a disclaimer, that is not only said about Israel. There's seven mitzvahs that it says are equal to the rest of the mitzvahs combined. But one of them is, is, is living in the land of Israel. And the question that we have to ask is, well, what's so significant? Like, it's, you're living in the land of Israel. You could be living in, I don't know, in Kentucky or in, uh, in Indonesia. Like, it's, you go there and, you know, you see something uh, special, maybe. I guess it's, you know, it's kind of a remarkable land. It's a remarkable people. But is it that much more remarkable than Egypt? Also very beautiful. Uh, you know, what's, you know what's, what's so special, what's so unique about the land of Israel that makes it something, uh, or a mitzvah that it's, it's fair to say regarding it that is equal to the rest of the Torah, the rest of the, rest of the Torah combined? I think that's a good way to kind of uh, uh, approach uh, the subject. Um, so I want to just I want to uh, present an idea here. This is an idea that really is so core and central to Judaism that maybe could justify uh, proclaiming, declaring on the land of Israel that it's equal to the rest, or it's representative, it's it's archetypical of the land uh, of all the mitzvahs. Just an idea. Um, so I think one of Judaism's great innovations is perhaps its greatest innovation is the idea of a convergence between the material, the physical, uh, the mundane, and the spiritual, the holy. Uh, you know, we have this uh, obsession with, uh, with, 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 uh, with saying brachot, blessings, uh, before we eat food. And eating food is something that all humans, in fact, all creatures have to do. Like, why are we involving any spiritual element to it? And the idea being that when we take uh, an apple or we take a slice of pizza and we say a blessing on it, we are changing the nature of the, uh, uh, of the activity from being one that's mundane and to one that's holy. Suddenly we're, suddenly we're doing a mitzvah. You know? And that, that kind of process of taking what could be physical and uplifting it and making it spiritual, making it holy, that is a uniquely Jewish, one of the unique innovations of Judaism. And I think that that's really demonstrated by the idea of Israel. So you walk to Israel and you see there's mountains and there's valleys and it's remarkable and such a tiny sliver of land can incorporate so many different, uh, uh, so many different uh, climates. You have a desert in the south 
and you have to go skiing to the north, and they're two hours away from each other. It's kind of remarkable. Uh, so that that, but it's 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 land, and you have the ocean, and you have the rivers, and you have the mountains, and you have old cities, and you have new cities, and it's seemingly kind of a land like any other, you know. And if you look on the surface, if you look at it and you examine it as an engineer, you probably won't find anything special about it. It's, it's a land, it's physical. It's kind of like that apple, you eat the apple. Does it look any different? If I take, a, I, take, I take two apples, one of them I make a blessing on, and one of them I don't, and we examine them under a microscope, will they look any different? No, no. If there's something imperceptible, it's imperceptible to the physical senses that makes Israel special. And it's, you kind of have to have a delicate feeling too. I'm sure all of you have been to Israel, and you may or may not have had this feeling of this place is different, this place is special, this place is unique. And you might not be able to pinpoint it, and you won't know. You might not. You have a hard time defining it, and it's, it's kind of a it's 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 a it's a weird, unsettling feeling where you feel something, and you know something, and you feel it. You have a certain intuition, but you cannot actually crystallize it in words. That's the idea of Israel. The idea of Israel is it's a physical land, yet it's touched with the with the magic of of of, of, of spiritual eternity, and that's why it's been so special. And we have this idea that kind of strings through a lot of other aspects of, of Jewish life, and that's why we can fairly say that Israel is representative of, of the Torah at large. Because Israel is a physical land, you work, you gotta work the land, you have to do agriculture, you have to do laws, you have to put stop signs, like any other land. Yet, it, it has so much spiritual power and potential that you could tap into uh, if, you, if, if you so choose. Now, we also find some interesting facts about Israel. We find in the book of Leviticus, we find a very kind of unique characteristic, which we'll see that kind of has played out historically. Uh, the verse says, uh, it's, it's after it's, Moses is preparing the people to go into the land of Israel, and he tells him, you should know the people that currently occupy the land, they're sinners. And the reason why you are being granted entrance and they're being bounced out is because of their sins. And you should know, that if you follow their footsteps, you too will be ejected from the land. Not only that, it says the, the land will vomit you out. It's as if this land has, uh, it has a certain sensitivity that it can sense sin, so to speak, and it just ejects you. And we actually find the pattern, and hopefully we'll go through the history tonight, we find patterns wherein at the spiritual lows of the people when they inhabited the land, that is when forces uh, uh, erupted to kind of kick them out. And I think today, like when we kind of look at Israel today, we think, yeah, Israel's been around since 1948. Okay, the first Zionist Congress was in 1897. We think of it as kind of a new idea. Uh, but big picture Jewish history, if you kind of zoom out and you look at the various times that the people have lived there and they were bounced out, we could kind of chalk this up as another time with the Jewish people are settling the land. And we hope to not make the same mistakes that uh, contributed to the downfall of the previous uh, settlements that the Jewish people have made. And it's kind of, if you look at the big patterns of what kind of dominated the people at the time uh, that they were ejected from the land, we could see kind of the model or the mode in which Jewish life in Israel flourishes, and unfortunately, the realities that set in when the, there's a departure from that kind of behavior. 
Uh, additionally, some other cool tidbits before we get into the history. We find a, an idea of very widespread. Go ahead, go. Can we, can we get it? Can we explain the, you said that there's times, things that happen? Yeah, I'm going to go through the whole history. Yes. Okay. Yes. There's this, uh, essentially three, maybe four major times uh, of, of tremendous uh, uh, tumults in, in the land of Israel. Uh, and they follow a very distinct pattern. Um, and I think, by the way, the state of Israel and the founding and the Zionism was almost a, a direct opposite, polar opposite of the kind of attitudes that permeated the Jewish communities at that time, which is remarkable because if we think of the connection between religion and Zionism, it wasn't always a very pleasant one. Uh, yet it was, it was kind of harmonious, ironically. Uh, and, that, and, that, and that is a departure from the realities that existed uh, the, during the times where the Jewish people were unfortunately bounced out of the land. So we'll get into that more, in, into more detail. But to me, that's the central theme. The central theme is that there's something about the land that uh, just innately kind of rejects a certain kind of Jewish na uh, nation. Uh, and it, it, and uh, the nation in a, in, a, in a different phase, in a different kind of mode of existence, flourishes there. Okay, um, so a few more cute, cool, I guess, tidbits or vignettes about the land of Israel to kind of just calibrate our thoughts towards what is so special about this land. We find uh, in um, the concept of, uh, of divine conduits. So when we say that the Almighty created the world, so there's a kind of a big divide between the way... Uh, you could have two people that both believe in God, and the Jewish definition of God extends beyond the idea of a creator. We have a creator, but we also have the idea of a sustainer. God continually sustains humanity and the entire universe, really. Uh, and we have this idea in the more kind of, I guess, esoteric elements of Jewish philosophy where we talk about the idea of a malach, of an angel, or a sar, which is more like a minister, who is in charge of delivering this vitality to the world. And every nat nation has its, own, uh, has its own kind of minister representative that is the pipe that delivers kind of God's lifeline to the land. Uh, for example, we find this struggle that Jacob has with the angel. And that's the angel of Esau. So what does it mean, the angel of Esau? It means that the nation that Esau was going to, going, going to bring about, they have a certain spiritual uh, uh, I guess uh, a sister that is going in, in charge of delivering God's goodness or, or, or lifeblood to, to that nation. And every nation, France has one and England has one and, 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 and Spain has one and, and Argentina has one, and, right? And then it says the land of Israel. Who is the angel in charge of administering goodness, life, the land of Israel? The eyes of God are always over the land of Israel. Israel has no buffer. Israel does not have this uh, atmospheric conduit that delivers God's goodness. We have a direct relationship with God. Thus, the, uh, the opportunity, the, the sense of, of spiritual connection is, is, is greater. And additionally, the, the response, the negative response, when the Jewish people are kind of deviating away from what they need to do is that much harsher and that much, uh, that much more uh, severe and immediate. So there's a very low tolerance for a, an imperfect Jewish uh, community in Israel. 
Uh, and lastly, I want to just kind of talk uh, one more point before we get into history, uh, is that we find the Jewish people leave Egypt, and 49 days later, they, they're around the mountain, they get the Torah. Now, they get the Torah, they have prophecy, they have Ten Commandments. This is the, the most significant event in all of human history. And how long did they need to prepare 49 days? Yet to go into the land of Israel, they needed 40 years. It seems like this entire process of the wilderness, everything that happened during those 40 years, was all a preparation for them to go in the land of Israel. You read Deuteronomy. Essentially, Deuteronomy is the last will and testament of Moses. He's preparing the nation for going into the land of Israel. And it seems like this reality of living in Israel, of, of, of actually cu the culmination of what it's all about, is something that demands so much more, uh, 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 exponentially more preparation than receiving the Torah, which is a remarkable thought. Either way, let's quickly get into the history. So they get into the land of Israel. What do they find? Right. Moses is dead. Joshua is the leader. They enter the land of Israel. There's seven nations. There's 31 different like city-states, and the Jewish people enter, and they are right away thrust into a, a, an ongoing war, basically, between these different tribes. Obviously, they start with Jericho, they move to Ai. They, if you read the books of, 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 of Joshua, you read about the conquest. They have a 14-year uh, conquest of the land, uh, and then they begin to settle the land. And in fact, we know that the different sections of Israel, even to this day, uh, are called after different tribes, tribes of Israel. Um, because the way Israel was parceled out was that every tribe got a, uh, a parcel of land or a section of land, and the people of that tribe lived in that part of the land. And to this day, we have uh, Judah, right? That's called Judah and Samaria. It's Yehuda Shomron. Uh, that is because of the names of the, of the people that lived there. And we have the, 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 the Dan and you know, different parts of the land still till this day in, Jewish, uh, in, you know, in the Jewish vernacular are called after the tribes that occupied them. Uh, so they capture the land there's, and there's it, ongoing battles. We know if you read the book of, of Shoftim, of Judges, which essentially spans the about four, roughly 400 years after the entrance of the land of Israel until we finally meet uh, the great kings of Israel. So you have 400 years of Jewish occupation of the land. Occupation is a bad word. I'll scratch that. <laughs> Jewish settlement or civilization or living in the land. Uh, and there's no king. And the leadership structure is, is that, that the spiritual leader is the judge. Uh, so we have a, a string of 16 judges. We even have female judges, which is interesting because uh, we're way ahead of the curve with regards to uh, equality. Uh, it seems like leadership in, in, in Judaism is a meritocracy. Uh, you know, Israel had a prime minister, a female prime minister in the, in the 60s, which is remarkable. Uh, and we had a Jewish leader. She was the leader, Tvora, uh 2,900 years ago, which is, which is, which is just remarkable. Uh, but this was a time, this 400 years, if you read about it, if you want to read about it more in detail, look at the book of Judges. These years are marked by chaos. There's no king. Uh, you are constantly sparring with the neighbors, primarily the Philistines. The Philistines, by the way, are a seafaring or coastal uh, uh, group that uh, were the arch enemies of the Jewish people at that time. Uh, we know the great stories of Samson. Samson was one of the judges. He's a great mighty warrior, and he takes the, the jawbone of a donkey, and he goes and he slaughters 100 Philistines. But that's what it was. It was, it was open warfare, essentially, uh, for, for, for a large part of the time. And they captured him, and they gouged at his eyes, and it was a disaster. 
but that was uh, the reality that they let, that 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 they emerged to. And by the way, an important note that maybe Sam uh, is more of Sam's territory than mine, but the the ancient Philistines that Samson sparred with, those people are long, long gone. Uh, in the year 135 of the Common Era, so about a thousand years after the Philistines are already done with, uh, a fellow by the name of Hadrian, this is the Romans, I know we're skipping ahead here, but just bear with me here. Hadrian, the, the Roman emperor, he uh, renames the land of Israel from calling it Judah, or Israel, as it was called by the Jews, to Philistemia. Now, why did he do that? He did that because he gave Jewish uh, and non-Jewish names to every, every part of the land of Israel as part of his Shmadi's attempt to de-Jewify Israel. Thus, uh, the city of Jerusalem is renamed Elia Capitolina. What? It doesn't sound like Jerusalem, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but that is the, um, uh, the Roman name of the land. Uh, he renames... Uh, a city, Shechem, the biblical city of Shechem, uh, the, the ones where Jacob and Jacob's two sons went and slaughtered everyone two days after their circumcision. Yeah. That one, uh, where Joseph is buried, it's called Shechem. Uh, but today, if you look at the map, it's called Nablus. Now, why is it called Nablus? What happened? How did that name change? Because Hadrian renamed, he renamed uh, Shechem Neopolis, which means new city. As we know, the Arabs can say the peace, cannot say the peace sound. So Neopolis becomes Nablus with B. Uh, but what's interesting, like for, for the discussions uh, of the legitimacy of Israel's claim or the Jewish people's claim to the land of Israel, the, uh, just the fact that it was called Palestine or the, the British mandate revived the term that was dead for thousands of years when they recalled the land of Palestine, that doesn't mean that the Palestinians today are the same Philistines that Samson sparred with. That's absolutely uh, a fallacy. It's a myth. It doesn't exist. Uh, either way, um, we have, during this time of the judges, we have a reality where there's a certain sense of anarchy. If you look at the last sentence, the very last sentence in the book of Judges, it says that during that time there were no kings. Ish hayashar Everyone did what they thought was right. So a certain sense of anarchy. Uh, that's how we view that kind of period of that time. Either way, the last of the judges is a very pivotal character in Jewish history, a fellow by the name of Samuel. And Samuel is the one who's going to anoint the first king of Israel. Who here knows who the first king of Israel is? Saul. That's absolutely correct. And who's Saul? Saul was a really tall man, head and shoulders above the people. He was the greatest scholar and the greatest warrior, the prototypical leader of, of, of men, you would think charismatic, talented in every way, the great scholar, the great warrior, who could, we couldn't come up with the cookie-cutter image of what a great leader is. And who here knows how long the reign of Saul lasted? Shnatayim. A mere two years. Why is that? Huh? Shnatayim. Shaul. Shaul HaMelech. Shaul HaMelech. Saul. Shaul. His lasted two years. Why is that? Because he was tasked by the prophet, by Samuel, go and exterminate the, the nation of Amalek. And Saul kind of didn't listen, and he allowed the animals, and he allowed some people to survive, and we know that the king uh, survived as well, and that, that line would eventually continue, and that would bear Haman. Uh, I'm willing to bet anything I own that, that, that Hitler is a, is a descendant of Amalek. 
Uh, and that one mistake cost him his kingdom. And that uh, engendered this reality where you have Samuel saying to Saul, you're not the king anymore. You have the palace, right? You have the army, you have the crown, you have everything. Everyone thinks that you're the king, but in God's eyes, you're not the king. And he goes and he finds some clown, some redhead that, whose brothers would do like this to him with their hands. And he says, okay, David, you're the king. And he pours the oil in his head. By the way, pouring the oil in the head. Uh, another quick, uh, uh, important historical uh, piece. Pouring the oil in the head or, or, or anointing. Uh, that was the ancient practice of coronation. If you want to coronate a king or you want to consecrate anything of holiness, you pour oil in it. And in fact, the Torah talks about the special oil potion that they would make called the Shemina Mishcha, the, the oil of anointment, that they would pour on top of the heads of the Kohens, on top of the vestments of the temple, the vessels of the temple, and the kings. And the word for that in Hebrew is Mashuach, or Mashiach. King David is called Mashiach, or Messiah. Not because he was the Messiah, because all kings were called the Messiah, because that means to be, have the, the, uh, the, uh, the oil poured in your head. And the Greek word for anointed is Christos. Christos, which the word Christ doesn't mean God or the Son of God or any of that nonsense. All it means is anointed one. Uh, so that's a, kind of a, a cool, important uh, historical tidbit, a reality, what the word comes from, what it means. Either way, King David is the, uh, uh, the, the, what's, what we view as the model king. And in fact, from the time of King David onward, all legitimate kings of Israel are going to be a direct descendants of King David, what's called the Davidic line. And any king of Israel who is not a direct descendant of David is not a legitimate king by Jewish law. And what's interesting, this is another very important, uh, I guess, peculiarity of history, where King Saul was the prototypical leader. Very tall, very handsome, charismatic, great Torah scholar. And King David, his own family, his brothers said, this guy is not worthy of being the king. His own family, could you imagine? Who would support a man whose family? You know, and he was, he was a redhead. He was a shepherd. He was not the prototypical leader. But we find again and again in Jewish history that leadership and even redemption and greatness does not necessarily come from the most expected of, uh, of individuals. You know, we, we find uh, even, we'll talk about Herzl. You know, Herzl was someone who did not give his son a bris milah, a circumcision, which, as you mentioned last week, that's the very basic. His son did not have a bar mitzvah. And you kind of, it's puzzling. Like, is, is, is the leadership of this next movement of what's going to save the Jewish people, it's going to come from someone who is so distant from Jewish life and practice and tradition? He didn't speak Hebrew. He didn't, know, he didn't observe anything. His, 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 own, uh, his own children converted to Christianity. He himself, in 1890, uh, uh, he in, in 1890 uh, he uh, opined that the best solution for the Jewish people to be accepted in Europe is mass conversion to Christianity. Did you know that? Cool, cool factoid. Herzl, Theodore Herzl, 1890, a mere seven years before the first Zionist Congress, he theorized that the only way for the Jewish people to be accepted is mass conversion to Christianity. This is the guy who lead us to the Promised Land, and lo and behold, he kind of did. 
Whether you like him or not, he died obviously in 1904, or 05, I don't remember exactly. But either way, he was kind of the one. He's, he developed the movement. And it's kind of bizarre, right? You can find this again and again. Sometimes the leaders are not the ones that we would point to as being, these are people that are worthy of leadership. And that we see with David. And David is the one, by the way, who's going to complete the conquest. It took 400 years from the times of Joshua to David, uh, where David finally captured Jerusalem. Uh, he was the one who purchased, actually, uh, Temple Mount. He wanted to buy it. He didn't want to conquest. He didn't want to conquer. He wanted to buy it because he wanted to make sure that the claim of it was unquestioned. He wouldn't get to build a temple. That would be his son Solomon. But either way, this is where, this is the high point of Jewish life. If you, if you had to ask, what is the model Jewish nation? What is us in our best kind of environment? Where we're united, uh, we're united in, in, in where we live, in land. We have great leadership. Uh, we have righteous kind of fulfillment of, of the, the Torah mission. It's the times of David and Solomon, those 80 years. David was a king for 40 years. His son Solomon assumed the throne at the age of 12, and he was king until he died at the age of 52. So those 80 years are, mar- are marked the high point of, of Jewish life, I, I would say. Uh, since in fact, the Talmud says that during those 80 years, things were so good for the Jews that they didn't accept any converts. Why? Because there was the risk of someone coming and saying, oh, I want to convert, but not sincerely because they want to just join the party. It was so good for the Jews. They had material wealth. They had spiritual wealth. They had unity. They had everything. You know, they had the whole land. They had peace. They had stability. They had prosperity. They had everything. And then, of course, who wouldn't want to join? You know, so they didn't accept converts until afterwards. So things got a little worse. Then we see if, we'll see who's sincere and who's not. Uh, either way, uh, Solomon is the one who built the temple. We have many artifacts even to this day. Uh, if you go to Jerusalem, you see uh, we have uh, uh, archaeological discoveries. We have uh, material discoveries. Uh, we, we have many, many, many remnants of this temple. Solomon builds the temple. Uh, and then Solomon dies at the age of 52, and then disaster happens. And this marks kind of the, 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 the first downfall of Israel and Jerusalem. Uh, after Solomon's death, his son, whose name is Rehavam, becomes king. Uh, and he makes a few strategic errors, and he decides to alienate the north, and he decides to make punitive taxation, and eventually there is a secession, and uh, what happens is that the, the northern kingdom secedes, they become the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom becomes the southern kingdom of Judah. And this is a, a, a tremendously unfortunate reality where what was so positive and promising kind of just evaporated almost. And we all, all we have is, in fact, 19 years where the temple was standing and the nation was undivided. Once there's the division, uh, it, really, it really spirals uh, very, very fast out of control. In fact, the northern kingdom... Uh, became a kingdom, a, a Jewish kingdom that embraced idolatry. And in fact, all the kings of the north, they all were idolaters. And in fact, Yeravim, the first of them, he built a temple for the idol Baal. Why? Because the people of the north wanted to go join the pilgrimage to the temple, because that's what they were always doing. They finally built the temple of Jerusalem. Solomon finally did it. Well, they all wanted to go. They made a pilgrimage every year. And now there's two nations. And he doesn't want them to be influenced 
He wants to maintain his power. So he says, you know what? You can't go, to, you can't go down south. And, oh, you want a temple? I'll build you a temple. Sure, we'll build a temple. We'll call a temple for the idol Baal. And that spiraled out of control. And after a few, a few hundred years, that, uh, that uh, nation was sacked. Uh, we meet someone by the name of Sancherib. Sancherib was the king of Assyria, which was the dominant empire at that time. And he had a policy of conquest and relocation. And he captured the northern kingdom of Israel, what's known today as the Ten Tribes, the Ten Lost Tribes, if you hear that, that's from that time. He captured them and he scattered them throughout the world. And in fact, there's a position in the Talmud that says that we will never be able to recapture those Jewish souls. They're gone and they're gone forever. He, in fact, laid siege on Jerusalem, uh, but he, there was a plague that broke out amongst his camp, and they all died. And in fact, we have to this day in the British Museum, there's these enormous, enormous stone tablets uh, from St. Herb's times, and in it he's, he's boasting about his sacking of the North Kingdom of Israel, uh, and he says, and I have Jerusalem by the neck, and I have him, I laid them siege, but it doesn't mention anything about any capture, any because the siege stood and the kingdom stood, stood. And this kingdom would outlast the Assyrian kingdom and the Assyrian empire. And it would take the Babylonians under the leadership of Nebuchadnezzar to finally destroy the temple and send Israel into exile. Uh, but either way, this kind of shows uh, a pattern. The pattern is where you have division. You have disunity. You have infighting. You have discord amongst the Jewish people eventually someone else is going to come and say, okay, we, we're kicking you out of Israel. If the Jews fight with each other, the Gentiles come and say, you know, we're better at killing Jews than Jews are. That's an unfortunate reality we see again and again, and especially in the land of Israel. And that's maybe a good lesson to take. Either way, the southern kingdom is what we have today. If you're Jewish, you have come from the southern kingdom of Judah that, that remain true to, 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 to Judaism, to Jewish values. Uh, but they didn't outlast them forever. They outlast them for a couple hundred years until they were sent into exile. Temples destroyed on the ninth day of Av, uh, about 4,200 years or 4,500 years, I think 4,200 years before the Common Era, according to Jewish tradition. Uh, and this is kind of going to change everything. From now on, you have the vast majority of Jews living in Babylon, right? They were sent into exile in Babylon. You're going to have from then on till today, so about 2,500 years, you're going to have a Jewish community where the majority of Jews do not live in Israel. Uh, and even though they're going to come back to Israel in mass 70 years later, under the leadership of Ezra, they're going to rebuild the second temple. The vast majority of Jews are going to stay in Babylon, and that's going to continue uh, till, till today. We still have the majority of Jews living outside of Israel. Uh, we still have 10 minutes left. Let's see how much further we could get. Uh, either way, um, so we have the temple being destroyed. We have the reemergence of the second temple. The second temple is going to, uh, is going to last the 70th year of the Common Era. And it's going to be destroyed by the Romans on the leadership of Titus. Titus the, was the general who was the son of Vespasian, who was the emperor, became emperor in the year 69. Uh, and he actually left the siege of Jerusalem. He was laying siege to Jerusalem. Uh, and he, he left to assume emperorship, and his son Titus took over. Uh, a few important things happened during that Second Temple period. Uh, number one, we have the, the Greeks. 
our beloved friends. Uh, the Greeks, they become the dominant world power after the Persians. So we have the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, uh, and the Greeks. Of course, Alexander, we know, is very famous. Uh, Alexander is going to spawn a few different Greek empires, namely the Macedonian Greeks, or Greek proper, the Seleucid, and the Ptolemaic Greeks. And Israel is going to be, for a few hundred years, kind of torn between the Ptolemites of Egypt and the Assyrians of, of Assyria, of basically north of Israel. That's when we're going to have the story of Hanukkah. We're going to have the uh, Hasmonean dynasty, where there's going to be about 100 years, exactly precisely 99 years of Hasmonean control over the land of Israel, independent control, uh, until Pompey gets invited, actually, uh, uh, Pompey, the Roman, gets invited into the land of Israel to kind of, I'm sorry if I'm throwing out too many dates here, so much information, I'm trying to get this all done in time, I apologize. The, I, I, I can safely say that perhaps this deserves a you know, slower uh, approach, but either way, I'm trying to give a big picture. Temple is destroyed in the year 70 by the Romans. Why was it destroyed? Once again, in, Jew, in, 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 in Jewish literature it says, Alma Abderatz, Sinat Chinam. Senseless hatred from one Jew to another. Once again, we point to disunity, discord, infighting, factionalism, sectarianism amongst the Jewish people as the main cause for the destruction of the temple. Why? There were so many different groups. You had the Sadducees, you had the Hellenists, you had uh, uh, the Baitusim, another group uh, that we don't know so much about. We had the Essenes, we had the Pharisees, we had the uh, Sicarium. We had the Bryonim, so many different groups. Each one was fighting, each one was sabotaging each other, each one was slaughtering each other, and eventually the Romans came and they just slaughtered everyone. They didn't care about anyone. You know? uh, and that destruction kind of had its after effects, kind of like uh, you would have a, uh, if you have an earthquake, and then two days later you have another earthquake. Uh, you have a tsunami. Uh, where in seven, the year 73 we have the slaughter of Masada. In the year 117 we meet uh, Hadrian, and he, un he undertakes this mission of essentially destroying the Jewish people in, in their entirety. That brings about the Bar Kokhba revolt of the year 132, uh, a, a sliver of three years where the Jews managed to get the Romans out of Israel, and the half-sovereignty and, and, and mint coins, and in fact the coins that we have in Israel today are replicas of the coins that were minted uh, under, the, under the leadership of Bar Kokhba from the year 132 to 135. Uh, in 135, the Romans regrouped, they squelched the rebellion, and they absolutely slaughtered everyone in sight. In fact, the Talmud says, in the description of the slaughter, that the rivers of blood were so vast that the Gentiles did not need to uh, fertilize their fields for seven years, which is kind of the scope of the, of the slaughter. Uh, either way, Jewish life is going to cease in Jerusalem for about two dozen years. So about the year 135. Uh, the Jewish life is going to move to the center of the country, to the northern part of the country, and pretty much uh, the, 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 the spirit of the Jewish community in Israel was broken. You still had a very vibrant and growing uh, diaspora, Jewish life in, in Babylon primarily, but also moving to Europe and North Africa. Uh, and but, and you, have, you have still have Isra uh, people living in Israel, but primarily that's going to be in the north. And that's where in, in Tiberias... Uh, that's where it's going to be the center of Jewish life, uh, of Jewish leadership as well, after, uh, after Jerusalem is made Yudenrat, free of Jews, by Hadrian. Uh, so, 
Jewish life in Israel is going to continue for a few more hundred years, but it's going to be petering out. It's going to be weakening uh, progressively. And once you reach about the year 500, we find very sporadic Jewish life in Israel. Now, even though the Jews were not living in Israel, Israel was at the center of Jewish focus, of Jewish consciousness, of Jewish prayers, of Jewish liturgy, of Jewish yearning. Uh, and Jews were always pining to go back to Israel. We have tremendous efforts were undertaken uh, in the 12th century, in the 13th century. There were always pockets of Jews living in Israel, primarily in the north, uh, but you always had a Jewish contingent in, in Israel, but the vast majority of Jews were no longer living in Israel. Uh, in the 13th century, as I mentioned, uh, the students of the Ramban, they made an effort to move back to Israel. Uh, in fact, that we have four temples, uh, four synagogues in the old city of Jerusalem that are still extant from that time. They're all subterranean because the Muslims who controlled Israel at that time, they had a rule that all, uh, all non-Islamic structures have to be underground. That's why all the four uh, old city uh, 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 synagogues that, uh, that date from that time are all subterranean. You have other efforts, like in the 16th century, there was a tremendous boom of Jewish life in northern Israel, primarily in Svat, the great Kabbalists that lived there at the time. Uh, in the 17th and 18th century, you have a, uh, a group of students of the Vilna Gaon, the Gaon of Vilna, the genius of Vilna, who he himself tried to go there, but his students eventually established the first yeshuv in Israel. Uh, till today, we have a very strong uh, uh, Contingency primarily in Jerusalem, the old Yerushalmis, the Jerusalemites, that can uh, trace their heritage all the way back to that group. But then in the 19th century, that's where things really changed. And that's where huge swaths of Jews uh, moved in, in 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s. Uh, that's where kind of there was a rebirth, a renaissance of Jewish life in Israel. Now, Let's talk about Zionism quickly here. Zionism, or establishing a Jewish state, not necessarily in Israel. We see Herzl, uh, he tried to promote a Jewish, land, a Jewish nation, a Jewish state in, in Uganda, modern-day Kenya. Uh, but the idea of establishing a Jewish homeland is not new at all. And in fact, in 1825, there was an effort to make the Grand Island, which is that small little island next to Niagara Falls, to make that the Jewish state, which is just insane, uh, remarkable. I don't know what, we have no words to describe that. <laughs> Either way, uh, things became very difficult for the Jewish people. We still have a very significant Jewish life in, uh, in the Middle East. Primarily, the Jews are living in North Africa and in Europe. Things were not good for the Jews in Europe almost at any point of the last millennium. Uh, but things were getting worse because even though things were kind of getting better, you have the Jewish people were finally allowed to have uh, citizenship in the beginning of the, 19th, of the 19th century. They're allowed to own land. Uh, but anti-Semitism was so ubiquitous and so ferocious that there was a feeling of inevitability. We have to kind of do something on our own. Uh, and we know the backstory of Herzl. Herzl was a... Uh, one, was a, uh, a highly assimilated, very intellectual, uh, very charismatic, very driven, um, very handsome, very tall, you know, very massive beard, but like stunning hair and everything, uh, lots of bravado and whatnot. But he was a Jew, he was kind of the modern Jew. He was a journalist. Uh, he didn't observe any, Jew, any Jewish practice, nothing. 
but something was awakened with him in 1894 uh, during the Dreyfus trial. The Dreyfus trial was a trial of uh, uh, a, uh, a uh, I guess he was a, a colonel, I think, in the, in the French army. Uh, he was uh, accused of selling secrets to Germany, and it was clear to everyone that it was it was, it was bogus, it was fabricated, uh, and you know people were parading uh, him through the street, screaming "Death to the Jews! Death to the Jews!" Like what happened? You know what happened to the modern, evolved culture that we were supposed to have in Europe? Uh, and there was a young journalist there, uh, Herzl. He was in his thirties, uh, and he, to him, this kind of woke up something within him. And he got the spirit and this effort to say this has to change. Uh, he wrote a book, a very small book called Der Judenstaat, which means their, the Jewish state. And he began this effort and he took on this titanic responsibility of saying, I'm going to lead this nation to Israel or to some land and we're going to build a state. We're no longer going to be beholden to anyone else. Now, just to bring back to the original point and the original theme that I wanted to kind of uh, hone upon or uh, revisit again and again. Herzl was an assimilated Jew. When I mean assimilated, it means that he was Jewish in name only. There's doubts whether or not his wife, Julia, was even Jewish. We know his sons converted to Christianity. His son, Hans. He didn't give, him, he, he didn't give his own son a bris, a circumcision. He didn't give him bar mitzvah, even though he himself had both of those, Theodore. Uh, where did this come from is one of the great mysteries of Zionism. Where did this effort? Now Herzl, we think of Herzl, we see post-facto. Herzl invested his life, his energy, his family money, which there was a lot of, into this idea. He went bankrupt over, over, over Zionism. He met with heads of state. He, he galvanized the masses to bring them to the land. But this is an example, I think, of a certain convergence of very, very disparate Jews. Who were Zionists? Who supported Zionism? Who rejected Zionism? There were two kind of supporters of Zionism, and there were kind of two people that opposed the Zionism. The two supporters of Zionism were people like Herzl, people that were kind of highbrowed, aristocratic, very intelligent, kind of the, you know, I would say like the, the, the more intellectual elites that understood intellectually that this has to change. But these were people that were very distant from traditional Judaism. That was one faction of Zionism, and that faction exists today. And there's, a, there's an entirely different faction, and that were the very religious Jews, probably a little bit less sophisticated, peasants, many of them. They were very much attached to the idea of Israel, of fulfilling the prophecies, of going back to the land that we pray for every day. Herzl didn't pray. He, Herzl didn't pray. He, he couldn't read Hebrew, much less he didn't pray. But there was an entire other faction of people that they saw in Zionism a fulfillment of a certain messianic promise that they were living and they were praying for. And that's a radically different approach toward, toward Zionism. And these two very different, very disparate, disparate factions came together. And to me, this is remarkable. This is an example of a Jewish communities uniting behind one cause. And it, I would say the exact opposite of, of Israel in its worst of times, where Israel had different groups warring. Here is different groups coming together. And I think even today, by the way, even today you have 
a tremendous divide between the various groups in, in, in Israel, in the populace, and in the Knesset, where you have some, some of them that are, we would call more pragmatic, that would argue for maybe giving up land, giving up territory for peace, and that seems like a very rational argument. And then you have kind of the settler community that they say we can't give up one inch of the land of Israel no matter what. And it's kind of puzzling if you look at it in a vacuum and you say, what's the deal? Why are there such different approaches amongst one nation? Well, the answer is that this is essentially one nation but two ideologies in Zionism. You have one of them that has more religious Zionism and to them, it's sacrosanct every inch of land. You can't give it up for nothing. And then you have the, uh, you know, the Herzl, the more secular Zionist, that, like we see, Herzl himself, like he, he, he wasn't, wasn't about Israel, it wasn't about restoring the Jewish homeland, it was about you know, having a land for very pragmatic reasons. And those people, okay, if, 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 if giving up land is going to give us peace, then that seems like a very reasonable argument. But I look at this as being a, a great example of how Jews can come together in Israel. I think even this modern state of Israel is an example of certain compromises and certain unity born out of a determination to make it work. Fast forward to um, how much time I have left. We have a little more time, guys. Yeah. Okay. Let's, let's push it a little more. Uh, fast forward to um, to the founding of the state. At the founding of the state, if you were to look at what the realities were on the ground, you would make a good case for civil war breaking out. You had uh, the Haganah and the Ragun, two groups that were essentially both trying to reach the same end, but they were slaughtering each other. Not, not with they slaughtering each other, but that, that, that was not out of the question. You have religious Jews, you have Holocaust survivors, you have people coming from every different place, and I think that there was very, very visionary leaders that we had uh, at the founding of the state that managed to maneuver and kind of uh, uh, just ensure that Israel will remain one state united despite being composed of so many different kinds of Jews. And I think even now, progressively, as we move on, of course, we have the first 30 years of Israel. It's dominated by the very left wing, almost communist, for sure socialist, but almost communist. Uh, they have a commune. Was that's a kibbutz? The kibbutz is a commune. Uh, that is the ideology that dominates Israel. Uh, and then you meet kind of Menachem Begin in the year nineteen seventy seven becomes pre uh, prime minister, and that's kind of the way it's been since then, where the right wing has been almost entirely in power since then. But you see kind of things settling, uh, and you see a nation kind of uniting under the idea of Israel, and Israel bringing vast majorities of Jews toward the land. You know, we have Israel being founded with 600,000 men, uh, people, and now there's 6 million Jews uh, in Israel. And they faced some certain existential threats like the 67 war. The 67 war, almost every rational observer of the realities on the ground argued that Israel was going to be destroyed after 19 years. Nasser, the president of, of, of Egypt, publicly declared on May 27, 1967, my one goal is the unmitigated destruction of the land of the state of Israel. We're going to push Israel into the sea. And remarkably, and miraculously, the Israel won a renowned, a, 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 a trounced, I'm trying to think of I think I mixed two words together. Resounding and trouncing, as I mixed together. A resounding victory by trouncing their enemies, which is remarkable. 
Uh, and you know, yes, Israel has its issues. Uh, Israel has its its you know its infighting as well. But I think today, more than ever, Israel is coming progressively closer to what the ideal has to be. That is uh, a nation in the land of Israel with a certain uh, sensibility towards what it means, the, the historical perspective of, of what this means, uh, the, the sensitivity to ensure that Israel retains its Jewish identity uh, and what it means to be Jewish and the link that we have to the great Jewish uh, communities that lived in the land of Israel previously. Uh, and, you know, 1996, the first Israeli-born prime minister was elected, and his name was Benjamin Netanyahu. And it was actually a surprise. Everyone thought that Paris was going to win. But Paris, as we know, loses almost everything that he tried. He lost every time, every election he lost. The only election he won was at the age of 85 to become the president of the of, of the land, which is not actually not elected by the populace. It's elected by the 120 members of the Knesset. Either way, I think today Israel is progressively, slowly, kind of coming together more and more to achieve this ideal of a unified nation under uh, a certain kind of responsibility uh, of what it means to be the, uh, be the people of Israel living in the land of Israel. Uh, and, and hopefully that will continue and we could kind of recapture um, the, the great... Uh, uh, just pride and uh, Jewish life that we had uh, during the best of times. Either way, it's all for listening. We, we kind of did cover from Bible to Bibi. Uh, question, yes. So, so to sum it, up, sum it up, I guess you said that the, the downfall or whatever went I, was, yes. was really when there was disunity in the Jewish nation. I would say that's a very fair argument. Yes. Uh, that, that is a pattern that repeats itself again and again. And I, I think today, a lot of people disagree with me, by the way. A lot of people just point to how much infighting that there is today, but they should get a historical perspective to read what it was like in the beginning of this uh, of, of the first century of the Common Era. Just read what was going on with the Bryonim and the Sicarium and all the different groups that existed then. It's very good now. Uh, you know, the fact that, uh, that uh, Israel is even considering a bill uh, which would label Israel a Jewish state and talk about uh, Israeli law being inspired by Torah law, by Jewish law, uh, and Hebrew being the only, the only language, getting rid of Arabic, uh, and just not uh, just making uh, the idea of giving up Jerusalem non-negotiable. Like those are trends that are very much in favor of this kind of development into what Israel ought to be. And I think that's, that's happening. It's not necessarily evident because it's happening very slowly. But if you look at the way it is today, the way, the way it was uh, just the composition and the, the, the realities that existed at the founda foundation of the state and certainly at the foundation of Zionism, it's come a long way. And that's a good thing. Either way, any other questions? Fantastic, everyone. Sorry for overstaying my, uh, my nine minutes. Not terrible. <laughs> Great, that was awesome. Yes, thank you. I appreciate that.